Welcome to The Walls Within, the mental journey to elite performance. In this podcast, we're going to explore elite performance from the cognitive perspective. We're going to talk about how we think about things, how we hold up to the stress and pressures of demanding environments. Can we climb the obstacles in front of us and continue on the path, or will we succumb to the negativity surrounding potential failure? Thank you for joining us for this episode. My name is Curtis McElhenney, and I'm joined by U.S. Air Force F-35 pilot Dave Paolillo. Uh, welcome, everyone, to episode four of the Walls Within podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about visualization and how it applies to not only my life in hockey, but it, Dave's as well, and the use of it in the Air Force. So, get us started. We'll jump right into it. I'll, I'll pass it off to Dave here, and he can discuss some of the ways that visualization is used within the Air Force and especially in being a pilot. Absolutely. Thanks, Curtis. And uh, thanks, everybody, for sticking with us and listening to episode four. I know we've kind of been all over the place with uh, some short ones, and then we had a, a really uh, a mega long one last time, and we were kind of all over the map. So if you're if you're tuning back into episode four, thanks, uh, and I appreciate it. And uh, this episode, we're going to try to give you something a little bit more concrete, something that you can go back and kind of implement into your own bag of tricks, if you will. But we want to talk about visualization. For anybody that's, that plays sports, you kind of understand and know that uh, – we, we sometimes call it shadow boxing. Um, and so you're, you'll be familiar with that concept of part, partly the power of positive thinking is seeing yourself being successful and rehearsing that in your brain. But one of the things Curtis and I were just chatting about before we jumped on here is, you know, training your brain to do some tasks automatically that don't require conscious thought and the benefits of that. And so as we begin, I want to start by kind of reading a definition from, uh, from an article that we found. And um, the article uh, is, let me pull it up here so I can read it. It's basically an academic article. It's a study, uh, and it's called Imagining Success, Multiple Achievement Goals, and the Effectiveness of Imagery. And it talks about tennis players, and um, and it's it's really pretty pretty interesting. Uh, we'll post the link uh, onto our website and Instagram so you can have a look at it. Uh, but, it's, but it's from a person by the name of Tim Blankert. And, and the second paragraph in it talks about a really, really good definition of what we're going to discuss and it says imagery is a mental performance and you can use the word visualization as well interchangeably but it says imagery is a mental performance improvement technique that involves programming body and mind with the purpose of responding optimally in a performance situation it doesn't specify the type of performance and so again the applicability to this technique is is really widely known among a lot of different and so I think that's pretty cool. It's a good starting point. And so on the one hand, many of you have probably heard about visualization and, and seeing yourself be successful. And then if you constantly see that success, um, then it will just kind of come to fruition. The other piece of this, though, is something that we were discussing. And, and think of everybody that drives. And when you get in your car, there's not a whole lot of conscious thought with jumping in, turning the key, or in many cases now pressing a button. And uh, starting the engine and putting the car in, in from park into reverse, backing out, putting it in a drive and, and moving and clearing yourself out of a parking lot or a driveway. And many of us do that. Sometimes we're sending text messages. Sometimes we're actually talking on the phone while we're doing that. And for most people that manage to survive driving without getting into a daily car accident, most people would say that's a pretty automatic thing, right? And, and I agree. And, and I do it too. And so how do we take that simple skill that 
if you remember when you were learning how to drive, how hard it would be, right? Curtis, I, you know, I think I was like 15 when I started driving. Well, I think I took out cones on my first road test. And so I didn't do so hot. And so how do we take that to the point where here we are driving, you know, all these years later, in some cases, 30, 40 years later, and, uh, and now we have it be automatic. All right. And so it, that, that came from repetition. But how do we do that when we don't get as much opportunity to repeat those steps? And so one of the things that we do, again, I'll take it to my experience as a pilot. And well before I even started flying fighters, I started flying small airplanes and Cessnas. And the applicability of visualization in that realm is, is, again, trying to take as many of those conscious tasks and making them subconscious, making them to the point where they kind of happen automatically. And so what we started to do is this, is this concept called chair flying and think of it the same as, as visualization and, and shadow boxing. And so it, at least in the air force, uh, and then even, like I said, even prior to civilian flying, civilian pilots are well aware of the concept as well. They will hand you day one of pilot training. You'll get this big poster and, uh, it's, it's pretty neat. It's a big poster and it's a cockpit mock-up that you hang on your wall. And it is, it is a mock-up of the, of the airplane that you're going to start flying. And the whole idea is that you park yourself in a chair in a quiet space and you sit in front of that thing and you go through your checklist and you go through all the steps that it takes from getting into an airplane that's not started and how, what button do I press first? And so as you get faster doing that, it, the whole idea is to just build repetition and speed. And and if you can take out your checklist and read and go, okay, step one, you know, turn on the battery. Where's the battery switch? And then you're looking going, I don't remember where the battery switch is. Well, you can kind of see that if it takes me that long just to walk through how to turn on the battery, this thing, this is going to take a while. And so I want to be faster because I can't step to the airplane two hours early and, and fumble around and try to figure out where the battery switch is. So I need to be expeditious and I need to get the airplane going. Well, as I do that, I don't get enough times to fly to, to train it to the point where I'm reversing in my car out of the driveway. And so chair flying fills in those gaps and it allows me to start with part task pieces, checklists, and run the crowd ops checklist and to get myself from an engine, from an airplane that isn't running to an airplane that's ready to taxi. And so as I build this repetition and I, and I, and I visualize touching places on the poster, going through the steps of the checklist, it gets to the point where it's really pretty neat. I don't even need the checklist. Anymore. I'm still following the steps, but I have it there. And what I'll do is I'll, I'll knock out all those steps. And then I go back and I read and I go, yeah, steps one through 12, good. I knocked all those out and I did it from memory, but then I back it up to make sure I didn't miss anything because some of those things are, are vitally important. For example, arming your ejection seat, something, something along those lines, right? And so, and so what that chair flying does is that visualization, you know, when you do that enough times, you know, as we're learning to fly an airplane and we sit there and we, and we challenge our brain and we go through it and then we go, okay, you know what? I'm going to do it quicker next time. And I do it again. And now more than just flipping switches and touching places in the airplane on this poster, now I start working in things like radio calls. And I start making clearance delivery calls and start getting taxi clearance. And I make sure that those are, are, um, tight because one of our objectives when we're flying, especially early on is to have clear, concise, and correct communication with outside agencies. And so that's important. And then, then it gets to the point where I'm coordinating with somebody else that's sitting in the airplane with me. 
whether that be an instructor in a in a in a in a pilot training airplane, but that's gearing you up eventually for a crew airplane where you've got a crew and and you're doing challenge and response items and stuff. But if I can visualize all this, and and I don't even need anybody to do it with me, um, I can practice all that. And eventually, what's going to happen is I can really really steepen the learning curve by not just waiting for every cycle of sitting in the airplane to do it. If I'm doing it in between cycles of flying the airplane, I'm getting better exponentially. And so every two to three flights, if I'm chair flying in between, things are, are happening at a much faster rate and the learning is happening at a much faster rate. And here's the really awesome thing. When you're learning to fly, it's kind of stressful not being good at it and being slow. And if I can take some of that stress off and I can be ahead of the airplane on ground ops, when I say ahead of the airplane, being caught up on a good pace, and it frees up my brain to deal with those things that I can't control. And one big, big example, when we're simply just talking about an airplane on the ground, is dealing with a ground emergency. If I have an engine that isn't performing properly, or I have an engine fire, or I have an electrical fire, or I have some, some other flight control malfunction or something, it's not going to be this cataclysmic thing because I've got the, the way it's supposed to work down pat so that when something happens and I'm efficient and quick at running through my checklist, I can jump into that, recognize it, and address it much, much quicker. And so you can see as I, as I kind of peel this onion back, just in something as simple as taking an airplane from, from sitting on the ramp to, to getting it ready to taxi, visualization is something that's, that's going to help tremendously. So that's, that's one of the things. And then, and then the beauty of this is that I don't have to do it for the whole, for the whole mission. I can, and, and we can talk about later the applicability of doing it. But if I do these, these key tasks in, in what we call part task events or part task chair flying sessions, I can get really efficient at some key things. Another key area, and I'll, and I'll just touch on it briefly, is configuring the airplane to, to shoot an instrument approach. All right. And so there's a lot of steps to one, validating that your airplane is set up correctly but also validating that you've got the correct station tuned in to shoot an instrument landing approach, we call it an ILS, or that you've got all the satellites required to shoot a GPS approach or something like that. And so as you get really efficient at those steps, it becomes repetitive and you can really, really amp up your game by doing it through chair flying. And, and we have found, I don't have numbers or data, but we have found that if, if you chair fly through this stuff, the people that don't chair fly, it's pretty obvious their performance is not as good as the people that do. And so that's a really interesting thing. And so think of the applicability in what you do on a daily basis, no matter what it is, and in sport, and you can really cha train your brain to achieve a much more elite level and, and much quicker, too, through that visualization. Does that, does, that, does that make sense? Yeah, it does, Dave. And, like, I have a couple questions for you. So when you... You know, you switch airplanes and just say you're a new pilot and you get put into an F-35. Yep. What is the learning curve? Like, how much time are you allotted before you're 100% familiar with that aircraft and all the functions that it has and possesses inside that cockpit? Like, is do you have a time frame that they need you to be up and operational by or is each pilot... Uh, it's dependent on their skill set and how quickly they can learn to be comfortable in that aircraft. Yeah, that's a great question. So, so the Air Force is is unique in that you have a reasonable period of time 
but it is not based on it's not based on on you. It's based on how quickly they need you to go from from academics to being able to to fly what's called your dollar ride, which is your first sortie. And I will tell you that I converted to the F thirty five in in the spring of two thousand twenty, and I started academics. I want to say it was in the last week of May, where I had day one class. Well, two months later, I was flying my first sortie. And as you know, the F-35 is all single seat. There are no, there are no twin seat F-35s. And so my very first time flying the airplane was, was solo. So that's pretty stressful. So after eight weeks, I've, I've never even seen the F-35, the inside of the cockpit. I don't even know what it looks like. I don't even know anything about the systems. All I know is kind of what the thing looks like flying and, and, and then I took it from, from day one of academics to, to, to four to eight weeks later flying it the first time. And what I'll tell you is, and I don't think I'm unique in this, is that first time you fly it, there is so much you don't know about the airplane. However, what you do know is all those things that I'm telling you that I just spent 10 minutes talking about is all the basics, how to, how to get it started and how to deal with troubleshooting. How to, how to use the radios. There's so many other systems on it, though, that you're just not even there yet. Like, you know, working all these sensors and all these other things. And frankly, I was just happy that first that first time flying it, I was just happy to be able to taxi and take off on them. So is that just a matter of them, you know, you're, you've done your two two months of class work. Yep. They just want to throw you right into the fire and kind of get you up in there. And, it, and that kind of expedites the learning process it's, of that aircraft. Is that the whole well, it's exactly a longer, and it's exactly the whole reason for it because that you can't learn the complexity of a system like that by just reading books. You have to do it, and and so the whole idea is that they're gonna. They're, first of all, let me be clear: you're not going to fly the airplane for the first time and be unsafe. And so the priority is dealing with emergencies, being able to deal with an engine failure, and bringing the airplane back dead stick. Um, called a flame out approach with a single engine airplane losing your engine is kind of cataclysmic. And so all these EPs, we spend a lot of time on flying recovery and departure procedures, being able to take off and land, being able to deal with EPs, going through our checklists. I mean, our, the, the pilot checklist for the F-35 is gigantic with all the different systems issues and everything that we could have, uh, if things aren't working. So that's exactly the idea. The idea is to get you in the airplane kind of show you, hey, you can take it off and land it and you can go fly and do some instrument approaches and you can go do some basic maneuvers. And then that's really where the whole world opens up is, is your learning curve, again, goes really, really very steep. So once you once you fly it, then you, you have the ability to kind of pile on now all this this other stuff. But you don't have forever and you don't have at your pace. You have at the syllabus pace. And so it's reasonable to understand that if you don't perform in one of those tasks, then you have to repeat the ride. But you only have so many chances. We call it so many rolls of quarters before uh, the video game gets unplugged and you're done. But here's the cool thing. When, when you've been flying for as long as I have and you've been doing this for, for a long period of time, and again, sport is no different, you figure out how to efficiently learn. So you figure out how to learn an airplane. And so the applicability of me being able to learn the new F-35 at such a late point in my career 
I took all the lessons that I learned from not only being a student in the F-15E, but also teaching in the F-15E. And so I taught my, I retaught myself how to learn an airplane. And so I knew what to prioritize. I knew what I should be studying. And I wasn't, you know, opening the book on how to operate the complex, you know, sensors. I was reading about how to configure the thing to shoot an instrument approach. And I was reading about how to how to do ground ops. And I was terrifying through those things. And I knew I would have time later to get caught up. So that that's kind of prioritizing is, is kind of another step, right? And so we're going to go through, there's a cool article in here that's got steps on how to visualize. And it's taken small pieces. And, um, but yeah, but, but we don't have forever. And so, but we have to prioritize what specifically we're trying to learn and stick to that. Otherwise, if we don't scope that, we're just going to be all over the map. The, the amount of volumes of reading material and study material is, is overwhelming. And so you have to kind of know how to learn so that you can be efficient and effective at it. Mm-hmm. So I think coming up with a game plan on, on how to do that is critical. So we circle back to that chair flying, which is really, you know, in essence, the visualization. And this is one of the things that I find fascinating from uh, my perspective is that whenever I did visualization in sport, it was always, I would close my eyes and I would see it in my mind's eye. Now yeah. you have this poster board in, in front of you essentially, and you're going through that entire experience when you are doing uh certain aspects of flying if you have just say do they do they give you a mission or is it one of those things where you know you just get a rough template of what you need to accomplish in this chair flight session are you being coached during that or is it all on your own and they just kind of hand you the instructions and say this is what you need to get done or this is what you need to visualize in this chair flight it's kind of all on your own. So the, the other instructors are there to see you succeed and they'll give you a lot of techniques, but they tell you that this is the established procedure. And then they say, we recommend chair flying, but it's kind of up on the individual to figure out how to best make it work for them. So there's no, like, we don't sit in an academic course where this is how you chair fly and, and we're all doing it like robots all exactly the same way. It, it's not like that. And so it, it's, it's given to us as a technique to get efficient. Some folks use it and still do. Other folks maybe tried it a couple of times and kind of said, you know what, that's not really my bag and I'll just do this through rote memorization. Um, what I will say is though, take it back to your point of closing your eyes. We talked about ground ops and, and having the poster in front of you. And, and that's, that, that lends itself to having that situation where your eyes are open and you're looking at a mock-up of the cockpit. But there's a lot of things we do that involve, you know, when we do what's called BFM which is essentially dogfighting. It's um, fundamental 1v1 uh, where we're fighting another airplane and basically playing, you know, cat and dog, trying to wind up on the tail of the other fighter, like you guys have seen in the movies and stuff. But when we're doing that, it's such a dynamic environment that there are small snapshots that we can take and we close our eyes and we can look at it and go, okay, if I see this, I'm going to do this. If I see that, I'm going to do that. And it's all within relation to how the airplane is flying relative to you. If, if I see him pointing at me, I'm going to do something different than if I see his nose off of me and I know he can't shoot me kind of a thing. And so we can take those little pieces and just train our brain to go, if I see this, do this. If I see this, do this. If I see that, do that. And, and that comes in, in chair flying as well. And it, and it lends itself 
beautifully to just about everything we do flying fighters because things are so dynamic is we try to think much like a chess game if we close our eyes and visualize all the possible moves that my that my rook can make on the board to bring it to bear then that's kind of what we're doing uh, i'm trying to think 10 moves ahead and if i can the more of those moves ahead that i can visualize and see and and develop repetition for and the better I'll be when it happens and I go, yeah, I trained my brain. I just, I actually just thought of that and I see it happen and then I know what to do because I've rehearsed it. Versus I go up there blind and I go, well, I knew what the options were, but I decided not to chair fly. So I'm just going to fight what I see. And I'll, you, you know, you may fight yourself a little bit behind. It doesn't mean you can't perform. It just means that if you thought about your game plan prior to seeing it and you knew how you would respond to a certain stimulus then you can bring it to bear quicker, I think. And, and again, sport is, is no different, right? Muhammad Ali talked all about shadow boxing. We, we've talked about, you know, hockey players and goalies visualizing different types of saves and, and things like that, you know. So I think mentally, re mentally rehearsing all of those things is, is going to give you an edge. It's going to give you a leg up. And it's, I'll, I'll be honest, it's scientifically proven. Don't, don't just take my word for it. We can, we can do the independent research and we we have we, we've looked at a couple of these articles you know so yeah it's always one of those things like um when i look at athletes and you know there's always elite hockey players who everybody knows their names and then there's everybody else in the league and when i look at goalies in particular you know i always try to figure out i'm like well what makes an andre vasilevsky just that much better than i will ever be and i think a lot of it what it really comes down to is one, their ability to process information. And it's like they could almost do it on another level. And I don't know if that's necessarily just because they visualize certain scenarios over and over and over again, but I got to believe that there's something there that what Vasi could do compared to what I could do, it, it just came down to his ability to be able to process information that much faster and to pick up on a situation a split second faster than I can do it. I mean, certainly there are physical uh, attributes to athletes and and what they can bring to the table. But for the most part, everybody's in phenomenal shape. They're they're in peak condition. So that kind of gets taken out of the question because we can all control that side of it. But what we can't control is our ability to process information in a very fast moving environment, like flying a plane or playing an athletic sport at a high level. And there are certain individuals that just seem to kind of rise to the top. Do you notice that with pilots? Is that something like where if there's a group of you all standing together and you fly the exact same plane, yeah. you know, is, is it like that? Is there that one guy who's standing alone at the top guy or girl, like whoever it may be. And it's, it's it, very evident that they just possess good. a little bit more than say the next yes. guy and everyone else yes. knows it. And, and you can see it really early on, too. You really can tell, you know, the Air Force does a really great job of taking fighter pilots and starting to groom them for our kind of penultimate, uh, our ultimate capstone, which is going to fighter weapons school. It's the Air Force's equivalent of Top Gun. And if you go to Top Gun in the Navy, everybody knows that analogy. It's the same thing as going what we call WIC in the, um, in the Air Force. It's the weapons instructor course, fighter weapons instructor course. And... And the Air Force does a really good job of identifying those people that do exactly what you're talking about. If if you can be a standout among a group of fighter pilots as a fighter pilot and stand out among those folks, 
well, you're doing something right. And it's exactly those people that are doing what you're talking about. First of all, they have an uncanny ability to remember the books, to remember the rote knowledge of our trade, of, of ranges and timelines and numbers and all of the, the material that we need to study and prep. They have an uncanny ability to retain that and, and, and basically not only retain it, but also use it and communicate it in a way that helps them when they're talking about a mission and, and what it means and, and why and the assumptions. That's first and foremost. Second of second is usually they've got great hands. They're just phenomenal pilots. And it's, again, that, that mental connection, it's their reaction time, it's their maneuver selection, it's their, it's their level of precision. And so I will spare any of those guys that may be listening uh, the embarrassment of saying their names but I could literally rattle off a dozen folks right now who are in the, the elite of Air Force fighter pilots. They're in the top 1% easily. Um, and and it's it's that weird thing when you look at them and you just know they're different. And and the beauty of it is many of these folks are very humble. Um, they're, they're incredibly credible in their trade and they're really approachable. And so th those are the three mantras of, of being a, what we call being a patch in the Air Force is humble, credible, and approachable. And so they exude these things, but they're just really smart and they're really phenomenal aviators. So they're awesome to be around, many of them. There's always exceptions. But the majority of those folks that, that earn that, that patch are great. But, but it's, a, it's literally like being around the Vazzy or the, or the, the Marty Perdure or something like that. It, it, when, when you stand out at that elite level and then you're a standout at that level, it's like, holy buckets, it's like a whole new level. Do you have the same thing? Uh, I would call them like throwback type hockey players in essence. The guys who just show up and it looks as though it's just a natural ability to for them. You know, they don't appear to do anything. You know, they're not they're not in there grinding. They're not sitting in the chair constantly just going over and over and studying nonstop. They just hop in the plane and they just seem to have this innate ability to intuitively almost know this stuff. Is they that those individuals those. or are those, there are those people that just kind of, you know, you almost get frustrated by them because you, you watch them and you're like, I do twice the amount of work that you do to prepare for this experience. And you still seem to do it better than I do. There are those folks, but I will tell you that in this job and around the caliber of people that I have had the joy of being around for 19 plus years, it is, um, those folks don't succeed. They appear to do really well. They've got good hands. They show up. Things things tend to come natural. But the folks that succeed are the grinders. And they're the ones that, that have a balance, okay? They have a balance of the skill. They're talented aviators, but they also grind. And they're phenomenally committed to studying, being in the books, and doing all those other things that I kind of talked about. And so I have also seen people that start out just, they're, they're average at best, below average aviators. And that's at their introductory level, but then they just keep going and their learning curve never stops. And while somebody may have a, a pretty good, you know, flow going and they're, they're in a climb, these folks may start below them, but their curve just continues to go up. And, I, and again, I, I'm thinking of one particular person, individual that was a student of mine that I've watched him just absolutely develop into a phenomenal aviator. And he didn't start out strong. 
but just kept grinding and grinding to the point now he's well respected in the community and and and, and he's a weapons officer and just absolutely phenomenal and so i see more of that that i see just the natural talent because the natural talent can only go so far but you're not going to have staying power if you don't have the work ethic to constantly try to get better and so what are the what is the what's the the corollary in hockey i mean i i can't imagine that those talented naturally talented guys can make it for as long as they want to by not having the hard work and the and the camaraderie and teamwork and all those other things too no because i think everyone at that level is uh, similar to you 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 reach a point where you know this the talent no longer gets you by and you know i would liken that to well we could say an undrafted player or a player that was drafted in the low rounds of the draft and before you know it they're a first first line player in the nhl and they're a rock star and you know it's like they came out of nowhere but the reality is no they didn't come out of nowhere it's just they've they've had this slow kind of incrementally increasing level and then all of a sudden you know they they peak and it just seems to catch everyone off guard and they explode and before you know it they're they're superstars and uh it's it's well deserved because they've been grinding it's just nobody's seen it nobody's heard it they also have a lot of grit and perseverance and things that we can dive into later but yeah they are truly the remarkable ones to watch when you look at the progression of it yeah like anything especially with flying f-35 it's like well we're looking at the the top the you know the top 0.01 percent of pilots in the world and same with professional athletes here today you just see this polished product on the ice and you kind of tend to forget some of the things that took time behind the scenes and one of those big things is the visualization the ability to see yourself doing something and you know the thing about at least in sports I can only practice for so long before my body burns out, but I can go and sit on my couch and I can close my eyes and I can replay a situation over and over and over again. And I can add so many different elements to it that the the practice time provided I'm willing to sit there can go on and on for as long as I need it to. And those are such valuable reps that I can't get on the ice only because I cannot create that situation on the ice for more than, you know, a two to three hours at most before my body just shuts down and they can't do it anymore at high level. That's exactly right. I, I fly, if I'm lucky, I'll get three flights in a week and they're about 1.5 each. So I get about four and a half hours of flying time in a week. But if I'm really trying to take my game to the next level, I can't just spend that four and a half hours thinking about it. I got to, I got to spend more time thinking and, and, and again, mentally rehearsing what I'm going to do. I still, to this day, if I'm going to go fly a ride, I will sit down and I will, whether it's in the morning as I'm getting ready in the morning, I'll close my eyes and I think through, okay, how am I going to get down to the airspace? How are we going to, how am I going to maneuver my formation? How am I going to manage to, to get myself to the target area and how, and, and that's, that's with the, with the amount of time I've got flying. I mean, I, you know, I still do that, but I'm really efficient at it and I can't just think about those things when I'm on the times where I'm in the airplane. I got to spend a little bit of time on the ground doing those same things. I really think, again, I I don't have any proof, but I really think I'd be willing to bet a, a pretty good chunk of money that the that the difference maker in these in this type of discussion are the people that have that mental focus to rehearse themselves over and over again being successful and and taking them to the next level. And I think that that is really one of the common threads among 
really elite performers of the elite is those people that do that. And, and, and I wish, again, I wish we could, we could hear from more people about their secrets, but there's tons of articles. And so there's this other article that we had, um, from 2009. It's, uh, it's, it's in psychology today and it's called seeing is believing the power of visualization. It's reviewed by somebody named uh, Jessica Schrader and in here, and I'll read it. Noted as one form of mental rehearsal, visualization has been popular since the Soviets started using it back in the 1970s to compete in sports. And we all know how successful they were, you know, just think of their, their Olympic hockey team for all those years. Now many athletes employ this technique, including Tiger Woods, who's been using it since its preteen years. Seasoned athletes use vivid, highly detailed internal images and run-throughs of the entire performance, engaging all their senses, all their senses, in their mental rehearsal, and they combine their knowledge of the sports venue with mental rehearsal. So it's highly detailed, you know, and world champions and world champion golfer Jack Nicholas has said, quote, I never hit a shot, not even in practice, without having a very sharp in focus picture of it in my head. Even heavyweight champion Muhammad Ali used different uh, mental practices to enhance his performance in the ring, such as affirmation, visualization, mental rehearsal, self-confirmation, and perhaps the most powerful epigram of personal worth ever uttered, I am the greatest. Which is really cool because it isn't just rehearsing the mechanics. It's also talking about re rehearsing the feeling of nailing that tee shot or of landing that right hook across the jaw of your competitor and, and then how that makes you feel and the confidence that it gives you and, and the, and all those feelings, holy cow, like if you can visualize success and the mechanics and then also mentally rehearse the feeling that you get from being successful, that starts to, that starts to become like a drug. You know, it starts to become something that, that you use over and over again and it builds you up. And I mean, I think it's, you know, the brain, brain power to take you to the next level is, is pretty, uh, pretty awesome. So. Yeah, and I think for me personally, where the power of visualization really comes into play was, you know, the mental rehearsal of certain situations allowed me to be calmer on the ice when I was doing my job. So when a situation presented itself that, you know, I hadn't seen before or whatever, a lot of times what would happen is, you know, you, your heart rate shoots through the roof and right. you get this giant hit of dopamine and all of a sudden it's like, you just light up, but when you visualize things and you rehearse it over and over and over again, when new situations arise, I felt my body was so much calmer, more relaxed on the ice. And when you're calm and relaxed in that environment with all those people around you watching, it's a much easier task to perform than it is when you, your heart's racing and you, you have all these, this heightened sense of emotion and you know, you can't really focus. And so that's really what I noticed was that my ability to focus and be calm and controlled on the ice was much greater when I was consistent. So, so walk us through that. What, visualization. what specifically were you visualizing? Individual types of saves or fixing mistakes that you had made by letting in goals and warm up and going, no, I needed to do this. I needed to drop my pad a little lower. I needed to move my stick. You know, what sorts of things were you, were you actually visualizing or was it more esoteric? Like where you're visualizing feelings and thoughts and stuff. 
Yeah, I would visualize movements, uh, particular movements, um, power play situation, rust situation, uh, individual shooters. Cool. You know, you get book on players and you know the top players, and they have certain things that they like to do and teams, all all sorts of situations. But what what was key for me was attaching you know a feeling to it. It was I think that just kind of anchors that um, that movement, that sequence a little bit better. If you just kind of go through the motions and there's no real feeling behind it. So, you know, if I'm doing something as simple as a recovery, save, like a rotation with a lateral push that I stay on the ice, I could, I could physically feel that with my eyes closed, making that movement, I could see it and I could physically feel it. And for me, just replicating that over and over and over again. So the RVH, the reverse play for goaltenders, big technical play these days. You have to hit your post at a specific spot and be very, very consistent with that. And it's a very hard movement on your knees. I have a couple of knee surgeries to prove it. Um, But what became critical was not only practicing it over and over on the ice, was being able to visualize that movement. And once that movement becomes consistency, it allowed me to connect two different parts of my game. And I always coach kids on this. You're connecting your game from above the goal line to your game behind the goal line. And elite players, what they're trying to do is they're trying to take your eyes off of all five players on the ice that are trying to score on you. So if the puck's behind me, there's four players that are potentially in front of me. I need to watch the puck. I can't be looking at the four players in front of me all the time. So elite players are constantly just trying to distract you and pull your attention away from things that it's trying to develop in front of the net. So uh, visualization and being able to connect dots was so key to that component. And, you know, we we do see a lot of times when there's a younger goaltender that will come into the league, it looks like they're all over the map. They're kind of out of control. Um, And a lot of that is they're experiencing all these new experiences, just like you were when you hopped into that flight after two months of studying. Right. It seems to be an overwhelming situation. Well, visualization is a way to expedite that experience and to kind of gain that knowledge where you can say, okay, now I'm going to be much more calm, controlled in this environment. So it's not going to feel like an overwhelming situation. So I think, so, so one question I have is when you visualize yourself doing those things, do you see yourself in the first person? Are you, are you wearing the mask and watching yourself move as if you're doing it? Or do you see yourself from a God's eye view looking down or from a perspective in the arena or something, how do you, how do you see yourself executing those moves from your own eyes? For me, it was always from my own eyes. It was first person perspective, and you know that just felt uh, a much better way for me to connect the feeling and and anchoring that emotion to what I was, excuse me, actually accomplishing or trying to get done. Um, you know, watching something from a top down view, I was just never really able to connect any uh, emotion to it personally. And that could just be me in my experience visualizing everybody else has different abilities and capabilities and how they see things. So people listening, this is the mental journey to elite performance, right? And so what are we talking about? This visualization concept. And I think it can be used in a way that takes you to another level in whatever it is that you're trying to do and it can take away some of the stress and pressure and some of those performance anxieties that you may have by going, hey, how do I round the corner? How do I take my game to the next level? And, and it can be in anything. 
And I think it doesn't just have to be in sport or in flying. It can, it can be in anything. But when you mentally rehearse not only the mechanics or the task, but you mentally rehearse the feelings and the reactions and the way your body responds to, to certain things, you can kind of prepare for it. And therefore, if you're not, if your emotions are, if you're not being caught off guard by your emotions and by your reactions, then I think you can, you can really increase the level of performance. Um, and I think that's kind of the whole goal, again, taking it back to, you know, how do we get to the next level with visualization? Obviously you've heard from Curtis and I, I think we're, we're believers. Um, let's, let's spend the next couple of minutes, Curtis, if you don't mind, I want to share this. Uh, you found this on a, uh, on a website called Sports Psychology Today. And again, we're going to post this link as well. It's from August, 2012. And it's from a, uh, from a, a guy by the name of Matt Neeson. And that's uh, N-E-A-S-O-N, if you want to look it up. Again, the title is The Power of Visualization. And he's got five tips. And it's five tips that will change your experience. And, and I would encourage you to take a look at this because I, I think you and I have just described doing all of these. And I wanted to leave those of you that are listening still, I wanted to leave you with these tips. Practice one makes perfect. There's two key concepts, it says. Uh, the first is your practice needs to be consistent. 10 minutes a day, every day is always going to beat an intense hour long session once a week. And that makes complete sense. Split, split a, a small portion of your day every day to do a little bit um, with, with, with this concept, with visualization. The second principle is to stay positive. Don't laugh at yourself or self-deprecate and go, I can't believe I'm doing this. I'm closing my eyes. I look like a fool. Uh, what am I doing? I'm sitting in a dark room meditating. Like, so, you know, stay positive. And if, and if you don't see immediate results, just stick with it. Uh, it says here, even if you can't summon crystal clear images just yet, you'll gain huge benefits from your practice. It still works. Just connect to the image in whatever way you can. Uh, and so that's tip one. All right. Curtis, anything on that one? Okay. Yeah. So tip two, visualize what you want. Again, one of the most powerful effects of good visualization is that it programs the subconscious brain. You want to uh, you want to think of the subconscious brain as a self-guiding missile. I love that. Uh, being a fighter pilot, I kind of love that. When a self-guiding missile is fired, it starts moving towards its program target and it does it automatically. So those are the kinds of things that I talked about early on when we started pulling out of your driveway. Uh, visualize what you want. And then the problem with most people is that they program their subconscious mind with negative coordinates. And, and I think those negative affirmations and that negativity in, I'm not good enough, or, you know, I've got no business being in here or something like that. Well, that's just going to chip away because you're going to visualize the doubt. And I know for me, I'm a terrible goalie. I think I'm a pretty decent fighter pilot, but I'm a terrible ice hockey goalie. And every time I land in a goal, I beat myself up and I, and I go, ah, what am I doing? I'm 45 years old playing beer league hockey. You know, I got no business. Well, guess what? My game is not going in the right direction. If those are the things that I'm saying after every, after every shot. Uh, and so that's kind of what they're talking about is don't program your subconscious mind with negative coordinates. Um, so that's visualize what you want. And that's tip two. Tip three is shift perspective. Um, he talks about walking you through uh, an exercise of what do you see and feel. Um, and he talks about whether or not you view uh, your visualization in black and white or color. Uh, and, it, and it's really fascinating. And I'll leave it at that. But uh, one of the things he says in here is with each breath, you relax a little bit more, continue to relax and breathe. This is this perspective thing is, is sounding a lot like meditation. He's asking you, what do you see? What do you hear? What do you feel? 
Uh, and, and those are the things that you can't really practice without closing your eyes and trying to get in touch with yourself. Um, but yeah, it's, it's commonly accepted that being associated in visualization, looking out from your body, just as you would, if you were really there is the more powerful of the two perspectives being associated helps you connect to the feeling of the visualization, which as you'll see shortly is critically important. So we can, uh, you can, you can dab, dabble into that one a little bit more tip four, pump it up. Uh, visualization is important, but what's even more important is the feeling it creates inside of you. I think no, no further than uh, I am the greatest, you know, Muhammad Ali and his visualization talk about pump it up, right? Like, uh, that is, uh, it's the second technique is you can use this spinning the dial, spinning the dial is a standalone technique, painting with more color, uh, those kinds of things that dial is connected to the intensity of your visualization. So, um, Turning the dial up increases the intensity of the emotions you feel, while turning it down reduces the intensity. And there may be times when you want it to be a very intense visualization, and maybe times where you want it to be real low key uh, and not a whole lot of uh, stress. So he, he talks about, again, the techniques of that. And then tip five is follow a system. Most people have a haphazard approach, even in the way I'm talking about it, it's very haphazard because I'm not rehearsed. But the process involves closing your eyes and just doing it, separate yourself from the pack, follow a system. Following a system is important because of the nature of it. Close your eyes, you relax physically, you relax mentally, bring up images of yourself, and 10 minutes later you catch yourself daydreaming, thinking about a holiday or a vacation or something like that. And so his whole point is be deliberate in your approach and, and set up a system and stay to that. Whether it's, you know, it, it should be as outlined as a workout. You know, if, if you know you've got an hour in the gym and you're going to do these things, uh, set up your visualization to do those exact same things. Follow a system. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty cool technique. Uh, this particular person is a leading Australian peak performance consultant. Uh, and so again, I encourage you, there's tons of resources out there. This is just one of about a thousand. Uh, and so with that, Curtis, any, any additions on that? Yeah, I think that's just great. Five great tips, right? And it, it's, it sounds too simple sometimes. And, you know, the, the reality is, is that sometimes simple is a little bit better and it's the consistency of it. And, you know, one, if you're going to put some of these into practice, don't be too hard on yourself. Um, everybody's system is going to be a little bit different too. Right. And you need to kind of play around with some things, try some things out and kind of find what works for you. I had a system that worked for me for hockey. You have a system that works for you right now and what allows you to learn to fly that plane. So you know, it, you have to mess around with it a little bit, have some fun, enjoy it, um, but definitely make it a part of your process because it is one of those actionable tools that will ultimately lead you to have more success in any endeavor. And it's so applicable in, in life. And, you know, it, I wish I had it done a lot earlier. I wish I had it known about a lot of these things, but that's like anything. You know, sometimes you find them out a little bit later, but now it's a big part of my life and it's, when I go to do anything, it's something that I get at and well rehearsed in now that I can kind of sit down and close my eyes and I can see a situation and it's perfect. perfect. Curtis, thanks. With that, uh, I would encourage each of you to uh, get on the Instagram, get on our website, send us an email. Really, really curious to hear your feedback. If any of this was uh, was useful for you, if you're still listening, then uh, then clearly we're, uh, we're touching you and I appreciate it. Uh, with that, I've got nothing else. Uh, thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time on the Walls Within. Let real break ice break by bed, and when it ice break by bed, it's okay.